0: Some people ask me about the debatable podcast. What is the mission statement? Um, Well, you know, if you look at the Tumblr, uh, it says, "...a free-form discussion about people's obsessions and passions, media, and life." And that sums it up. I mean, that's pretty accurate. Though it's a wide berth, um, the people that we have on this show are talking about their obsessions. And they're able to funnel that into careers, hobbies, um, things that they can make money at. But what I've always been interested in is talking to people that feel passionately about something. There's nothing worse in a conversation than um, awkwardness and dead air caused by just people who feel kind of lazy about something or kind of indifferent about something. I never was attracted to making small talk or, or having conversations with people that, um, I didn't feel like felt passionately about the, the things that they were talking about. They were just trying to fill in uh, dead air, um, because they, they felt awkward. So, you know, when it comes to conversations and committing it to digital wax, as I, I've called it before, um, this this podcast medium, I need to talk to people who who can hold a conversation. Um, it can be as simple as a, a question, um, setting them off on a topic, and all of a sudden, um, you you key into that thing that they feel passionate about, and they can go, they can talk. Talk for an hour. They can talk for two hours. And that's kind of what the Debatable Podcast has always been. It's always been me and a guest or me and, and several guests and kind of uh keen into their passions, their obsessions, what they nerd out about. And that could be anything. It doesn't have to be movies, it doesn't have to be video games, it doesn't have to be comics, it doesn't have to be any of the the um the media that we constantly think of as being nerdy or geeky, you know, the things that um that we get together on Twitter community about, um, I think that every person has the ability to have the thing that they nerd out about. It can be sports. It can be mainstream, but if you're passionate about it, that's, that's the person that I want to talk to. So that is what the debatable podcast is. And Today's episode is no different. I'm talking to Charles R. Dye, who is a writer of uh, hard-boiled fiction. He is the founder of Hard Case Crime, Um, and this was a Lost Debatable podcast. Um, We recorded it a year ago. I think it was in June of last year. And I I lost it. I don't know where it went. It got wiped from my my recorder or it was on another hard drive. But much to my chagrin, I could never find it until um, maybe a few weeks ago. And uh, so excited to finally have this out in the world because we talk about such... Uh, a wide variety of things not just writing but just seeing behind the uh the curtain on how hard case crime came together uh what Charles has done in in so many different facets of his life and there's a lot of engaging wonderful stuff to uh to expose uh the, the debatable uh listeners to so i'm really looking forward to that i hope that you enjoyed this episode as um you know recording it, I, I, I couldn't wait to have it out, and then when uh, it went missing, I, I was I was depressed for months, I guarantee you, but uh, I'm so elated to finally have it out there, so I really hope you, you appreciate it, enjoy it, and um, we got new debatable interviews on the calendar, so more new episodes coming soon, I hope you enjoy those as well, so um, today, Charles die on the Debatable Podcast. Yeah. thank you so much for making the time. First of all, I know you're a busy man.
1: Nonsense. I am delighted to do this.
0: <laughs> um, on, uh, on the show, uh, I've had quite a few writers and and people that I I really admire, uh, from uh, you know novelists to screenwriters, uh, producers, uh-huh. and um, you know I'm obviously very interested in your work. I'm a big fan of hardboiled fiction. Uh, I, I was great. a big big fan of uh, the Nice Guys movie and the ni- novelization you did. So I, as soon as the novelization came out, actually I had put two and two together that you were involved <laughs> in the project, and I great. was like. This is the perfect meeting of all, of all the things that I enjoy.
1: So, <laughs> You know, I, I felt the same way when um, when I heard about the Nice Guys Project. The chance to work on it hadn't even occurred to me. And uh, later I heard that Shane Black, who had been a friend of Hard Case Crime for about six or seven years since we started publishing, uh, working on a book by Brett Halliday, who's a, a writer he really likes. Fantastic. Uh I'd wanted to do something with him but hadn't found the right project, and then I heard he was interested in having a uh, nice guy's novel to coincide with the book, and somebody asked me, who do you think could write a nice guy's novel, and it didn't take me two seconds to answer that question because (laughs) the answer was, I'll do it if – if Shane will have me. So I sent him a note saying, hey, I'm going to propose this unless you tell me not to. And his answer was, are you kidding? I had no idea you would even consider doing it. And uh, so it was a little love fest, and I was really happy to do it.
0: It it fits kind of the the mission statement for hard case crime, but it's also in a weird niche because it seems like a a lot of people – either it has – you know, baggage to it—the the the medium of the novelization, or whether uh-huh. people are really interested in in kind of you know uh, whether it's a uh, airport uh, paperback that they pick up on the way to uh, a trip or whatever. It, it seems to go uh, hand in hand with the type of pulp fiction that you've become you know quite known for. But absolutely. But it's got to be a weird thing. Like, how do you have you ever done an adaptation like that? And and what is the process of n- novel? novelizing a screenplay.
1: (laughs) Well, the short answer is no. Neither I personally nor Hard Case Crime has ever done anything like that. We did publish a movie tie-in edition of Lawrence Block's book, A Walk Among the Tombstones, when the Liam Neeson movie came out. However, that started as a book. And so all we were doing was picking up a novel that I loved and had read when it first came out and bringing out a new edition of it Oh, uh, and it happens to have been turned into a movie. This was the opposite, and I think Pulp Fiction, of course, is is in many ways disposable literature. Mm-hmm. People bought the pulp magazines for a quarter, or the the, or even less sometimes. Uh, dime detective was presumably a dime, right. uh, but paperbacks were a quarter, and uh, and didn't keep them for very long, which is why so many of them are collectible now. But novelizations, or what you sometimes saw back in the day that were called photo novels, mm-hmm. uh, they were the most disposable of disposable literature. This really was the stuff that you picked up just on a lark to, to satisfy a whim and uh, and then tossed. So in, in some ways, it's the pulpiest of the pulp. So I, I was tempted by that. I'd never done it before. Uh, the deadline was a little bit daunting. I write quickly and I like deadlines, but this was about two months. Uh, Shane needed a novel in stores when the movie was out, of course. And print schedules required it to be done. I guess the movie was in stores in... May, and uh, had to be in warehouses in April, and so on. If you worked backwards, I had two months to write the book. Mm-hmm. So I set myself the um, the classic Pulp Writers uh, project, project of uh, waking up at all odd hours of the night. I would wake up at 2.30 in the morning each morning, every morning, and work until about six, at which point my five-year-old daughter woke up and the day began properly. <laughs> Uh, but the great thing is you read stories about Cornell Woolrick and David Goodis and, and these guys who wrote the classics of Pulp Fiction, and they were hammering away at their Royals or Underwoods at midnight or two in the morning. And as a modern writer, you just don't get that opportunity. You don't feel that. And, of course, they had the hot breath of a bill collector at their neck. And I didn't quite have that, but I had the hot breath of a deadline. So it, it felt like a chance for me finally to, to have that experience pulp writing the way it was meant to be. You can't look back. Right. Everything is forward momentum. Everything is velocity. Uh, and I ended up producing the manuscript in 27 days, which wow. was about half the length of time I had for it. So I was very proud of myself and uh, and happy to beat the deadline. Mm-hmm. Now, the process, you, you asked about the process. Yes. Shane uh, gave me the, the shooting script, and then several other drafts of scripts that he and his uh, writing partner, Anthony Bagarazzi, had written over the course of several years. They began uh, writing this as a non-period movie. It, it was uh, set in the present day. Mm-hmm. Then that didn't work out, and they recast it as a TV series. So this was the pilot for a TV series, sort of in the Rockford Files mode. Right. And that didn't work out. And then eventually they hit on the idea of making it a period movie, and, and it did work. Uh, so I had those three scripts to work from and a rough cut of the movie without the effects or all the soundtrack uh, layered in. And uh, and I played with that. I uh, Shane also gave me a few other bits and pieces, of memo he wrote for the actors for Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe to uh-huh. help them understand their characters better and, and so on. Now, I, I guess when the typical writer is hired for a novelization, all he's got is uh, is maybe not even a cut of the movie. Maybe it's just sure. stills from the movie sure. and, and a script. Uh, and so I felt lucky that I had a personal relationship with the, with the writer and director, and I could shoot him an email saying, hey, in this scene I was a little confused. Ryan Gosling says such and such, and I don't know what's really going on in his head. What do you think is going on in his head? And he could answer, well, I'm not sure either, but I think it's more like this than like that. Right. And uh, so that, that dialogue, I, I think, was, it was certainly made it a more fun project for me and, and uh, hopefully got a, the final result closer to what Shane had in his uh, head to begin with.
0: Was there a memo at all about what type of material that wasn't in the movie could be included? Was there anything that, um, that that's in the novel that might have been from an earlier draft that's not in the shooting script? Uh,
1: no and yes. There was no memo. In fact, Shane did the opposite. He said, don't feel you have to be bound by the book. This doesn't have to be a slavish rep- representation of the, of the events of the movie. Um, don't be bound by the script. Go ahead, add things, and don't be afraid to go dark. Um, now m- movie 's very funny, and the script is funny because everything Shane ever writes is funny and uh, and it 's terrific, so there 's only so dark you can go you have to still preserve what makes the movie what it is, which is to say the humor um, but Shane has a very violent edge to his uh, his comedy, and i don 't just mean literal violence, although there 's that too, but there 's a real darkness there, so I, I thought it was great that he told me to be feel free to, to mind that, and then I thought of ways to do it now. Uh, are there things in the earlier drafts that, that uh turn up? Not a ton, but yes, there are some. And um I played with throwing in a few bits and pieces here and there. Uh there were some jokes in the finished movie that emerged naturally from scenes in earlier drafts and in fact don't even make that much sense in the finished movie. Mm-hmm. Uh there's that joke about eunuchs when they go to the bar and uh the bartender says, What do you call a, uh, a guy who's had his balls cut off and uh, and Russell Crowe says marriage. And then they talk about uh, about Unix. This guy has bodyguards who are Unix. Why in the world would he have bodyguards who are Unix? That makes no sense. He's a porn movie producer. It right. doesn't make any sense. Well, In an earlier draft, there was some Middle Eastern shake and his bodyguards were Unix. Uh, I didn't change that, but I did uh, try to cause anything that no longer made sense in the continuity of the movie to make sense and there were a few things that i pulled from uh, from earlier drafts and then there's stuff that i made up out of whole cloth just for the fun of it
0: right we uh so my question was going to be were there any <laughs> obstacles um in adapting it um but i guess that might be one of the things that might be one of the the adventures you went on was trying to to um clean up the the coherence of it
1: Yeah, it was a very good script, and you know, in a twisty mystery plot like this, it's easy to go wrong, and Shane really didn't. The plot worked fine, but there were little things. For example, there's a scene toward the end, without spoiling anything, where one of the uh, villain's henchmen uh, is trying to get a a roll of film, and the climax of the movie is all about chasing that roll of film, and at one point, one of the bad guys calls another of the bad guys and says, go get it. And the bad guy receiving that order says, I'm on my way. And the next thing he does is not go on his way. He doesn't go to the hotel room where the film is. If he did, the movie would end a lot sooner. Instead, he braces Ryan Gosling's character and spends some time um, interrogating him on a rooftop and winds up uh, falling to his uh, untimely demise, all because he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. And the question is, well, why doesn't he? He's got to have a good reason. Now, the truth is, in movie making. You know, sometimes you don't want to ask how the sausage was made, and maybe they just didn't have a shot of the guy doing the right thing, or who knows what. Uh, but in the book, it had to make sense. And so there was another character, uh, and I made that other character this one's goddaughter, and she's not responding to Hales on the walkie talkie, and he's nervous about her, and he was afraid she's been shot or killed, and mm-hmm. thinks Ryan Gosling might have done it, and, and he goes and uh, braces Ryan Gosling because he wants to know his do- goddaughter's okay. It makes sense if you give a reason the movie didn't have time to give that reason or didn't think of it in any event. I put that in. That's That's an example of a mm-hmm. cleanup fix. And, and I was happy to do that. That kind of thing is, is easy. I also wanted to go into the heads of some of the minor characters. Uh, right. it's, you'd expect to go into the heads of, of Gosling and Crow's characters. They're the big uh, leads and maybe Gosling's daughter. But what about the, uh, the blue face, bad guy who, uh, who's kind of a giggling psychotic, uh, Wouldn't it be interesting to discover that back home in Detroit, he's the leader of a Boy Scout troop as his cover identity?
2: I just thought that would be fun. Uh,
1: And and so on. So I I had a chance to, uh, to go into some of their heads just for a paragraph or two sometimes, but enough to make them come to life, at least for me.
0: Right fantastic. So, I mean, uh, I, I was thinking when we originally, uh, planned this, that I was going to go in some sort of weird chronological order, but just like, <laughs> per- but just like the perfect, uh, hard boiled novel, we're going to do flashbacks and we're going to go, Excellent. Excellent. go backwards. But I, I think that it works pretty well in saying that, you know, nice guys, obviously Shane black and you, uh, of the same mindset when it comes to the things that you love as a, a part of this kind of genre, uh, you know, a, a medium. So let's kind of talk about Hard Case Crime and uh, how that began. Because you have a, you have a, quite a... <clears throat> interesting life. You have at least three major acts <laughs> that I can everyone. count. <laughs> Everyone's everyone got an interesting life. Sure. Buy them a drink and make them tell them. Absolutely. Uh, but you have someone come on and you're like, we're going to talk about mainly about this. But then, you know, I, I find uh, out your connection to, to uh, Juno and I didn't know uh, that that was a, a big part of your life early on. It's true. It's very it's true. interesting. So let's talk about hardboiled fiction and, and uh, hard case crime. Had it always been something that you were interested in growing up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. When I was a kid, I used to read Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, which, by the way, has been around nonstop for the last 75 years. It's still yeah. being published, and I get a subscription every month that comes in the mail, and it's such a treat. Uh, but when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, I would read uh, Ellery Queen. Now, most of the stories in Ellery Queen were more classical detection or psychological suspense or twist in the tale, but once in a while, there'd be a hard story. Guys like Donald Westlake and Lawrence Block wrote for it, mm-hmm. not as often Ed McBain, but some of these guys did, and then less well known people like Jack Ritchie and Henry Slezar and uh, Stanley Ellen and some of their stories were mordant and dark and macabre and some of them were sad and bleak and tragic, and I fell in love with it and I started reading the novels too. So I went from Bloch's short stories to Bloch's novels, and oh my gosh, that was that was a revelation, you know, right. reading the Matt Scudder novels and some of the standalones. Oh, yeah. And then eventually I found Chandler and that was the end of it for me. I, I and Kane so I fell in love with Chandler and Kane and Block and the rest and decided that it's two things. You're right. It is the language. That's what sucks you in at first. That's what seduces, you, you know, those wonderful similes of Chandler's and the wonderful hard boiled patois and the, the, concision and tightness and uh, heat, the burning heat of of Cain. Uh, that's what sucks you in, the language. But then eventually, especially as you grow older and you're not 12 anymore but you're 19 <laughs> and you see the world as a sour place, not a happy one, uh, you realize that the outlook, the worldview, is compelling as well. You know, a lot of mystery novels, a lot of novels, period, subscribe to the uh, Samuel Johnson notion that uh, literature should be edifying. You should see good characters and virtue triumphing, but that's not the world we live in, certainly not post-World War II, never mind during World War II. Uh, you see a world that has corruption and it has evil triumph from time to time. It has... Uh, bad things happen to good people and good things to bad people and you get an itch that you need to scratch and that itch gets scratched by classical literature too the sort of mm. proto-noir you you read Oedipus and that's a noir story you know the poor bastard marries his own mother <laughs> uh kills his father you read King Lear you know everything goes wrong everyone's dead and um uh, And he says, it isn't him, it's one of the other characters, like flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. And the wonderful revelation of noir fiction in its post-war version is, uh, no, no, there isn't some nefarious, uh, malevolent force in the heavens. That's H.P. Lovecraft. Noir is, there's no force in the heavens, there are no heavens. And no one's killing us for sport. Uh, we live or die in a world that's indifferent, so if you want any justice, you make it for yourself. That's, that's the noir story. So the language is, uh, is, is the uh, gateway drug, hmm. but that uh, revelatory worldview that there were writers out there – That who, nihilism. The nihilism was yeah. very, very powerful for me, especially at that age. You know, I, I think as I get older, I mellow a little. But then again, I don't have Cornell Ulrich's life. I, I, you know, I don't have a gangrenous leg and a dead mother and live in a hotel room and, right. uh, you know, <laughs> closeted homosexual who hates himself for it. I, I don't have that that level of misery, but I sure love reading the man's books. Right. And uh, anyway, that's, that's where my love of noir originally came from. Uh, I also... Loved writing, and so it was natural that at some point I'd start writing, and I I wrote all sorts of things. I started as a teenager writing video game reviews for magazines, and that was a lot of fun. Can't be too uh, noirish there. (laughs) Um, When I started writing fiction... I, I submitted my first short story to Eleanor Sullivan, who was the editor of Ellery Queen, because I loved Ellery Queen, and right. miraculously she bought it. She then rewrote the story to within an inch of its life, which was <laughs> not more than it deserved. And uh, it, it was uh, it deserved thorough rewriting if it deserved anything. Did you, what did it really you get, deserved was did, being thrown out.
0: Did you, did you still get sole credit on it?
1: <laughs> I did get sole credited, which which was far too generous. Uh, she, she did such a thorough edit, but it also introduced me to the world of editing, and, right. and for that I'm forever grateful because what I turned into, you know, I've written five books, but I've edited more than a hundred. So she really, uh, not only made me a better writer, she she turned me into the editor I am. Um, uh, anyway, I sold them the first three stories I wrote and then another dozen or so to, uh, the sister magazine, Alfred Hitchcock's mystery magazine. Mm-hmm. And I was a mystery writer. I, I thought if I was going to be anything, it would be a fantasy writer, a science fiction writer. Cause I, as a teenager, I loved uh, fantasy and science fiction. I sure. never, never have been able to write that uh, but crime fiction I had a, a kind of affinity for, so I, did, I wrote it. When did you send
0: yeah. that uh, that story in?
1: I was at 17 years old. Okay. It was published in the March 1988 issue of uh, Ellery Queen, at which point I was uh, 18, but I think I sold it when I was 17. I'm guessing I wrote it when I was 17. Wow. It might have been right around my birthday. Uh, the cover model was jake the snake roberts a <laughs> wwf uh, wrestling superstar and what the hell he was doing on the cover of every <laughs> queen i honestly don't know but uh they didn't have much money and they didn't paint covers so they got press you know free pr photos from anyone they could get and slapped them on the cover at the time and right so it got to be <laughs> in jake the snake roberts's issue
0: <laughs> so what was that uh what was that trajectory like from 17 year old on yeah you obviously like it, it, what i'm trying to wrap my mind around is at what point does it d- does it click in your head that you want to make a, a an imprint you want to make a label out of this and What's were those yeah. were those books written prior to it like little girl uh, lost or was no. that
1: non no, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that was contemporaneous with the decision to start hard case crime gotcha. uh so so hard case crime came about in an odd way uh I was running Juno. I started a company called Juno, which was an internet company, one of the early providers of free email, and in fact, very different from the others. So Hotmail provides free email, and sure. Gmail provides free email, but you have to have internet access to use it. You have to sure. go to their website. If you don't have internet access, you can't get to their website, so how are you supposed to use it? Mm-hmm. Juno was a different kind of idea. There we said, we'll give you the internet access, too, and we'll give you that for free, too. All you have to have is a computer with a modem and... Uh, you can dial in from anywhere in the right. world. Now, today, people use their cable, and they use uh, you know high-speed access of other sorts. But back then, in the early 90s, dial-up was what people used. So mm-hmm. we said, instead of paying America Online $10 a month, you can pay us nothing. How does that sound to you? <laughs> and as a result, we got you know, 4 million, 10 million subscribers over the course of a few years. That preoccupied me. I did almost no writing during that period. I ran Juno for about seven years. Right. But I worked with a, uh, a guy named Max Phillips, who was my art director, graphic designer, Juno had to look like something, and he came up with what it looked like. And our ads had to look like something, and he worked with the agencies and came up with what Mm -hmm. what they looked like. Uh, And when we finally merged Juno, uh, I want to say out of existence, but that's not true. It's actually still in existence, but we merged it out of our control. Uh, Max and I went to the blue bar of the Algonquin Hotel, which was two blocks from our office, and we sat down, had some drinks, and we said, well, what do we do now? You know, We just got ourselves out of a job, now what? Mm -hmm. And he had grown up reading... Chandler, and Hammett, and all the same guys I had. He was a writer uh, deep down, a brilliant graphic designer, but he was also a writer. He'd written two uh, literary novels that he'd slaved over for years before he polished them to the point of, of publishing them. They got reviewed in the New Yorker. I mean, they would really quality books, but he had a, a secret passion he harbored for what we might gently call... Uh, lower quality books, the kind of things you don't have the luxury of laboring over for seven years, uh, things that had to be cranked out quickly and were a lot of fun. And uh, he and I started lamenting that we had been born too late. You know, he's a little older than me, but neither of us had lived through the, the Depression. And if we wanted to write books like this, short, high velocity, punchy, uh, unrestrained, uh, No one was publishing books like this anymore, not the way we wanted, you know, not with sexy women painted on the cover by painters like Robert McGuire and Robert McGinnis and James Avati and James Bama. So how do we do that? And, uh, And as we got progressively tipsier, at one point I said, you know what, why don't we just do it ourselves? You know, we each write a book and we publish them ourselves in our own imprint let's revive the old gold Medal imprint. That was the gold standard back in the day. They were the first publisher of original paperbacks. Before that, paperbacks were all reprints of earlier hardcovers. And they said, let's do original books and paperback. And they did all the great ones, uh, John D. McDonald and Peter Rabe and all these guys. And uh, we said, you know what? Gold Medal's probably owned by someone else, but why don't, we, uh, why don't we start our own imprint? And that was where it ought to have ended, frankly. I thought it was a fun idea, but I was drunk. <laughs> and then... Two weeks later, Max came to me and showed me some covers he'd mocked up, and they were gorgeous. You know what they look like? They looked mm-hmm. like our covers. And he said, you know, I just couldn't get this idea out of my head. What would you think if we did a line of books and it looked like this? And my answer was, it looks fantastic, and now that you've shown me what it looks like, I can't not do it. So I did the editorial part. I, put to, I went to my bookshelves, and I pulled down books I loved that no one had read in 50 years, and uh, I made a list of old books that had been forgotten were out of print and sometimes we're by big name authors
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh and then i thought maybe we could get the rights to reprint and i said you know what max let's uh you and i we started this whole thing because we wanted to write a book a piece uh let's do that you write the first original novel for the line i'll write the second and i'll fill in around it with um with reprints so every month we'll do one reprint and one original Nice. So that gets us the first uh, four titles, two reprints and our two originals, and then I'll, I'll find some writer who's alive, who's willing to write <laughs> us a book. Why the hell not? Somebody's got to be willing to do it. And we went, and I knocked on doors for, for th- close to three years. So the, the the drinking night of the Algonquin was the winter of 2001. Wow. We finally signed a contract with a publisher to put the books out in, I think, August of 2003. So for two years, I went door-to-door, literally, knocking on doors in New York Publishing House. It helps to be living in New York City. It sure, makes it easier. You can walk definitely. places. But, and I knocked door on doors, and, and everyone we met was both encouraging and discouraging. They said, you're right. These covers look gorgeous. They're fantastic. I love it. But this is a niche product. you know you go to a big publishing house and they want to sell a million copies of something and they said, well how many how many collectors of this old stuff are out there? How many fans of this kind of thing are out there? Maybe a few thousand. So we sell a few thousand copies of a book. It's not enough to pay for for the project. And then finally, we happened upon a company that doesn't exist anymore but did then called Dorchester Publishing mm-hmm. and they were the last remaining one of the two last remaining independent paperback publishers. all the others had been eaten up, gobbled up by big conglomerates. But there was them, and there was Kensington. Uh, And they had romance. Mm -hmm. They had westerns, of all things. Nobody buys westerns anymore, (laughs) but they published them. They had horror. They even had some techno-thrillers in the Tom Clancy vein, Mm -hmm. which were a thing back then. But they didn't have crime fiction, and crime fiction was one of the most popular genres in history. They didn't have it, so I, I called them up. And I said, uh, Max Phillips and I know everything there is to know about crime fiction, going back 50 years, 80 years, uh, but we don't know how to print books, and we don't know how to get them into stores, and you know everything there is to know about printing books and getting them into stores, and let's partner. Let's do this together. We'll do everything up to the point where you can push a button and print the books, and you'll do everything from that point on. And their first answer was, well, what do we need you for, you know? If we want to start a crime line, we just start a crime (laughs) line. And I said, well, it might or might not be as good as what we deliver. I don't know but we're going to do it for free. You don't have to pay anyone. If you want to hire someone to do it, you've got to pay them. Uh, we'll do it and not get paid a penny for it up front, uh, and then you'll just you know pay us a percentage of, of what we do. Well, that didn't end up being the deal we struck with them, but it appealed to them, and that got us in the door. Right. And uh, we signed a contract in 2003. Our first books came out a year later, which is fairly standard. It takes about a year from signing a contract to having books on shelves, September 2004, And uh, Max had written a book called Fade to Blonde. That was his first dummy cover. It was called Fade to Blonde. Where did that come from? I have no idea. He just had to have a title. He made up a title, Fade to Blonde, and a a fake name for the author, Forrest DeVoe Jr. And then he sat down and he said he thought, well, what would a book called Fade to Blonde be about? Obviously, it would be set in the movie business. Fade to Black is the phrase, Fade to Blonde. So there's got to be a blonde in it. And he started puttering around, and 30 days later, 60 days later, he had a book written, which was about seven years less time than he put into any of his other books. Right, right. And he had fun writing it, more fun, he told me, than any other book he ever wrote. And that book, although his other books are are possibly not even in print anymore, that book is still in print, still sells every month. Uh, it won the Seamus Award for Best uh, Paperback Private Eye Novel of mm. the Year, and it's a really good book. It It has some wonderful Chandler-like writing in it. Oh, and it's it's terrific. That was our first original novel, and then
0: it's pretty interesting. Ahead. It's pretty interesting in this milieu, you know, because we're talking about something that is niche and that people would get. Um, you know, I, I know that you do offer uh, a Kindle version of a lot of your books because oh, I mean we do obviously. Now
1: on it but right it's that, not cuz we want to do it
0: exactly right it's part of this you know techno- technological you know uh, uh, um, uh, undertaking that a lot of people do they get a kindle instead of these paperbacks right. but these paperbacks are the are the thing you know and it's interesting right. to me that it, it can't be that atypical that a lot of these uh, these pulp fiction writers uh, when you're you know writing uh, getting paid per word and everything <laughs> and you uh, you probably are working backwards from a title and, and blowing out sure, a story from that. from
1: cover art too. You know, in the old right. days, the pulps would they'd commission covers from painters or just buy ready-made art, and then they'd go to an author and they'd say, write me a story that fits this cover. And it didn't always fit very well, but that's okay. Nobody right. cared. Um, now, it's, it's easier when you've got a pulp that has six or seven stories in the issue, and nobody knows which story the cover's right. supposed to go with, so you can get away with murder. If there's a paperback, there's only one story, so it kind of has to fit. Sure. But one of our goals when we started, uh, Max and I said, you know, we want, deliberately want to fit the old pulp tradition. We want our covers to not match the interiors. So right. we talked about maybe having a redhead on the cover of Fade to Blonde. We didn't <laughs> go that far. She's, she's blonde, but we have deliberately gone out of our way to have the covers not perfectly match what they're illustrating, just because that's part of the classic tradition. And what we're doing, as you say exactly, is resurrecting not just a style of writing or even a style of art. We are doing those things, but we're resurrecting a physical artifact, an actual object. We want the books to feel like they felt in the old day. We even at one point looked into tipping the page edges in red, yellow and blue ink, because that's what they did in the old day, but it's not considered ecologically safe anymore. The machines to do it barely exist anymore. And we finally dropped that idea. Uh, we also dropped the idea of charging only 25 cents for a book, but, (laughs) uh, we tried to keep the dimensions as close as possible. Now in recent years, we've switched to the larger format just because, uh, for various distribution reasons, it's, it's feasible that way. But, um, there's still like the I, first 66 we did was small
0: it's it's really exciting uh for those who who haven't had the experience of going into like a used bookstore and finding <laughs> one of these old paperbacks yeah, old and the the yellow the yellowed pages and just yep. you know smelling it and knowing that there's history <laughs> <laughs> there this cheap little artifact that actually has a lot of value if you really think yeah about it. um let me ask you something about the cover sure. designs because they are beautiful and they're something that that uh that a lot of people admire especially of uh, hard case crime um but are they like are they direct homages to the covers yeah. of
1: books or are they to it's paintings
0: pop culture
1: no no there none of our books are deliberately at least homages to anything uh are original paintings produced at rapid speed by phenomenally gifted painters uh we don't say we want this one to look like you know right. venus uh, by botticelli we're not trying to do visual puns in fact we're deliberately trying not to we don't want anything to come across as spoofy or air quoted or yep. bracketed when people do pulp uh, covers, and they do sometimes, there was a line of James Bond reprints that had pulpy covers by Richie Fahey. Owen Smith gets work from time to time doing pulpy covers and his work's beautiful, but it it's not true to the period. It's Owen Smith, and Richie Fahey is Richie Fahey. No one looking at those covers would mistake them for an actual cover from fifty three or forty seven.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What we wanted was was books that would make someone who was alive then do a double take. And our proudest moment was when we got a note from Mickey Spillane saying You know, If I hadn't checked the copyright date, I would have thought those actually were old covers, that you picked up old art. Not one of our uh, covers is actual old art. Although this month we're publishing a book for the first time, a a book called Soho Sins, which, by the way, is possibly my favorite book we've published. It's really terrific. Uh, And it's got a cover by Robert McGuire. Now, Robert McGuire is dead. He's been dead since very early on in our our history. Mm -hmm. I talked to him. Uh, about doing a cover for us back in 2003 but I believe he died in 2004 just as our first books were coming out I may have the exact year wrong but in any event he told me he couldn't paint anymore he just wasn't in good enough health Uh, but I wanted to have a McGuire cover he was one of the great geniuses and I got in touch with his daughter and his daughter found a preliminary uh, sketch he did color that was never published anywhere as far as she can tell and uh, she gave us permission to use that so this book, Soho Sins, is the first time we're using an old cover, uh, an old painting, but every other book, uh, and that's just as a tribute to Maguire, but every other book has had an original cover painted deliberately in the old style and not referencing anything else. We don't want to you know, jab an elbow in the reader's ribs and say, hey, isn't this old-timey stuff funny? Isn't it right. cool? Isn't You're not it- doing
0: it ironically. That's the thing. We're
1: not doing it ironically. We want it to actually look like the real thing. Right. And then if somebody else wants to think it's ironic, let them think that. But it's not because we want it.
0: How much of a um, percentage are your, your acquisitions, your reprints?
1: Oh, it's interesting. Early on, it was probably two-thirds reprints and one-third new. And now it's probably the reverse. And the reason for that is, when we were starting out, Nobody knew who we are, so we're, uh, nobody knew who we were. So, uh, agents didn't know to submit manuscripts to us. Authors didn't know why they should submit to us. Uh, we didn't pay well and we don't pay well, but at least now we have a history and a track right. record of winning awards and getting written about, and authors know our covers and they want to be part of what we're doing. Uh, but back then, we didn't have very many submissions, and I have a huge number of books on my bookshelf. So, in any given month, if I had to choose between accepting a submission that was so-so mediocre, I wasn't that in love with it. I didn't like it enough to buy, or pulling down a book from my shelf that I loved, truly loved, and wanted to introduce readers to again after 60 years of being out of print, I always would choose the reprint. Right. And so in the early days, we had more reprints. In today's day and age. Uh, First of all, we've used up a lot of the reprints we wanted to. Uh, I wanted to introduce people to the works of Day Keen and Gil Brewer, for example. Mm -hmm. And so I picked my favorite Day Keen book, Home is the Sailor, and my favorite Gil Brewer book, The Vengeful Virgin. I don't want to print another Gil Brewer book, another Day Keen book that I think is worse. Why would I want to print a book that's worse than the last one I did? Uh, So I, I feel I've kind of used up Day Keen and Gil Brewer, and I've used up a lot of writers in that way. That's not to say they never wrote anything else good, but they never wrote anything else I liked as much. Mm -hmm. And so we have fewer candidates for reprint. Oh, there are plenty still. We haven't done John D. McDonald, and we haven't done Chester Himes and so on. But there are fewer. And meanwhile, we now have 1,000 submissions per year coming in. So there are more that I feel passionate about and really love – and I also, as much as I love reviving the work of old authors who don't deserve to be forgotten, I love publishing the new work of authors who don't deserve not to be in print. Sure. And so we've done some first novels. We've done some uh, you know, novels by people who've been, uh, who haven't published anything in 20 years, like Joseph Koenig. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found books that never were published by authors back in the day, like Earl Stanley Gardner, who was the best-selling American author of all time, period, bar none. Uh, even even compared to Mickey Spillane, who was uh, you know his individual oh. title sold more, but right. Gardner had written far more books, so it ended up with Gardner taking the title. Uh, Gardner wrote a book in 1939 that he never published, and uh, he never published it because his publisher at the time, even though he was the number one best-selling author in America, his publisher said, "I don't want to publish this book. It's too vulgar. It will hurt your reputation." <laughs> And so Gardner put it in a drawer and never published it. So we found it, and, and I read it. I was dying to know what was so vulgar about it. Well, it was 1939. A lot of things <laughs> that aren't vulgar today were vulgar then. You know, there, there are a few things. You know, your, your eyebrows go up a few times. Oh, yeah. But uh, it's, it's, it's a fun book. It's called The Knife Slipped, and we're publishing it in December. So is that a new book or an old book? Well, it's an old book, but it's never been published before. Right. So I count it as a new book. So right. you'll find more original first publications nowadays – uh, maybe 2 to 1 and in the old days it was 2 to 1 reprints.
0: You're you're doing such a a great job of kind of exposing people to your own personal collection too. And that's what I really <laughs> that's, appreciate. That's
1: true. You know. Well, it's what editors are supposed to do, right? You know, you read a magazine because the editor curates a monthly collection yeah. or a weekly collection of pieces that, that are of interest to him or her that he or she thinks will be of interest to you. Well, it's the same with an imprint, a line of books you're trusting an editor whose taste you like to curate a selection of books that you're going to enjoy. And that's, uh, that's my favorite thing to do.
0: So part of your mission statement with uh, hard case crime as an imprint, um, I, I, think that you're, you're having the ability to also, you know, uh, play in the sandbox because you also, uh, write, uh, um, novels under aliases too.
1: <laughs> I do. Right. Uh, One of them is Richard Alias, which is an anagram of my real name. I thought it would just be fun. you know. Guys like Ed McBain and Lawrence Block and Donald Westlake uh, all wrote under fake names, often because in a single issue of a pulp magazine, you might have two or three McBain stories, and you couldn't have the name McBain show up three times on the table of contents. It's just embarrassing. So McBain would write two of them under fake names. Actually, McBain itself was a fake name. His real name was Salvatore Rolumbino, but uh, he changed it formally to Evan Hunter. He wrote as Richard Marston. Block wrote as Alan Marshall and Sheldon Lord and uh, Chip Kavanaugh and so on. In any event, I thought I'd try it under a pseudonym, too. And I also thought it might be good to keep my editing hat separate from my writing hat. It just seemed improper somehow for an editor to buy his own books. But then when the books started getting nominated for awards, I didn't feel so bad about it anymore. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, I wrote the first two books I wrote for The Line were as Richard Alias. That was Little Girl Lost and Songs of Innocence. And then I wrote one under my real name, our 50th book, which is about the editor of Hard Case Crime. So I thought, OK, I can do that one under my real name. That was 50 to 1, as by Charles Ardai. <laughs> and uh, And then uh, this one, The Nice Guys, I put under my real name, too. Uh, So that's four books, and I've written a fifth novel that's not for hard case crime, for the sister line of uh, sort of pulp adventure novels, not crime novels, sort of in the Indiana Jones vein. Uh, And I wrote that under the name Gabriel Hunt, uh, which has sort of a funny story attached to it, too.
0: Oh, in what what way?
1: (laughs) I thought it would be fun to do pulp adventure. It turned out there's barely any audience for that. People still read crime novels, but nobody reads uh, – doc savage nobody reads uh, h rider haggard nobody reads indiana jones books frankly uh that's a great brand everyone loves indiana jones movies but when the books came out mm-hmm. you know there have been a hundred star wars novels there have probably been 200 star wars novels how many indiana jones novels have there been a dozen sure. it, the line keeps getting shut down because no one buys them but i tried it and so i thought to make this easier i'm gonna do a line of six books about this character named gabriel hunt who is this globe-trotting adventurer who finds lost civilizations and lost treasures and saves damsels in distress. And by the way, he's a little bit of a Bruce <laughs> Wayne type because he's got a $100 million fortune. That's the character. But to make sure that the books all get shelved side by side on the bookshelves in stores, let's use the name Gabriel Hunt for the author as well. Let's do this like the Hardy Boys books where – uh, all of the books were written by different people, but they were published as by Franklin W. Dixon, who didn't exist. Right. But that got the book shelved together. So we had a series of six books sh- written by uh, Gabriel Hunt. The character was Gabriel Hunt. The character was obviously complete fantasy. There is no you know, billionaire rich guy who flies around the world on a private jet and goes you know, punching uh, Nazi uh, <laughs> cave women under the Arctic ice. That doesn't happen. But when I went to Hollywood to try to pitch the series of books to um, uh, to Hollywood for the movies, which, by the way, didn't work, but at least not yet, but uh, I was sitting in the production offices of a major producer who's made many famous movies recently, too. I won't give his name because it would be embarrassing. Uh, and his head of production came out, and I was sitting in the lobby waiting for him. And he was apparently very excited about... The Gabriel Hunt books, and he came out and he saw me sitting there, and I stood up and shook my hand hand and said, "I'm Charles Ardai," and he looked around the room, disappointed that I was the only one there, and he said, "Oh, uh, Mr. Hunt couldn't make it," and I just didn't know what to say at that point. I I just like, no, Mr. Hunt couldn't make it; he's a fictional character, and uh, you know, Indiana Jones couldn't make it either, and, and neither could Batman but i didn't say any of those things but in the end he he didn't buy the books we great <laughs> if, if if mr hunt could have made i'm sure he would have made a better presentation than i did <laughs> um let me ask you are there any differences in the way that
0: you handle it when you're method acting through <laughs> your alias
1: Uh, I feel more at ease, certainly for my first novel. I I felt an enormous amount of pressure when it was – I started writing that book, Little Girl Lost Under My Own Name, my real name. And every sentence, I felt the pressure to make it really good and polished. My name was on it. And I only got about a chapter of the way into the book. And then I changed to a pseudonym. And it was liberating because I didn't care because Richard Alias let his reputation be you know, in, in the crapper. That's fine. What <laughs> difference does it make? I don't have to be him ever again. Now, as it turned out, it freed me to write a book that by all accounts is pretty good and sure. people like it. I've reread it and it's, it's, it's a first novel. And it's got things wrong with it. But it's, it's pretty good. But I don't know that I could ever have written it under my real name. You know, now that I've got five books under my belt, I probably could without too much inhibition. But that first one, I was very inhibited. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also worked in, you know, two ex-girlfriends into the book. And if it's my real name, maybe they'll notice it. And, you know, it, it definitely is freeing to work under a fake name.
0: Absolutely. So also with all of this, you know, as your imprint becomes more well-known, like you said, there are people that you eventually get um, their their work, you know, their contemporary work working with you, uh, for instance, like Block and, for instance, uh, Stephen King, which is pretty oh,
1: amazing. It, it was very, very much so. You know, I, I approached Stephen King, who I did not know, who did not know me, who owed me nothing. <laughs> Uh, I approached him asking just for a blurb. That's really all. We hadn't published one book yet, but we were trying to find a way to get bookstores excited about carrying them. And Stephen King has been very generous to new authors and other authors. He does provide blurbs when he loves something. And we knew that he loved Pulp Fiction. He grew up reading it because he'd written essays about it. And he wrote a whole book called The Dark Half, which was about a a character, a writer, uh, sort of like Donald Westlake, who wrote one type of book under his real name, and then dark, violent crime fiction, pulpy stuff under a fake name, and then in in the book, The Dark Half, the pseudonym comes to life and starts killing people. And so I knew Stephen King liked this stuff, and I uh, found the name of his accountant. Don't ask me why his accountant, but that's what I found. And he happened to have an office on Park Avenue, and I happened to live in New York, so I just put together a package of stuff showing what Max's covers would look like, and Mm -hmm some of the authors we were going to publish and, and I took it down to the account and I said listen you don't owe me any favors but could you please get this to Stephen King I think he's really going to like it maybe he won't but it was a cover letter and some samples of our work just saying you know you grew up reading Ed McBain and if I publish a book by Ed McBain probably people will buy it he, he was still alive at the time and mm-hmm. a bestseller. but you also grew up reading Day Keen and nobody remembers Dave Keen nobody's read Dave Keen for 50 years right. Peter Rabe oh, these guys David Dodge and if I can publish a Day Keen book with a line on the cover that says these guys know pulp Stephen King these guys are good Stephen King anything one line one sentence it would help a lot and it might mean people read these people that you grew up reading and they discover them again and they're children get a little tiny bit of money because of it and in any event people read these wonderful books and that was it, that was the end of it I didn't hear back and I didn't expect to hear back you know sometimes you throw a bottle with a message in it into the water and you don't expect to hear back you do it for the fun of it and why not Uh, and then it I don't know two months later, six months later it was definitely months later, I got a phone call out of the blue from a man who said "Uh, I'm Stephen King's agent and Steve asked me to tell you he does not want to write you a blurb And he paused because he's a sadist, and I, you know, I I, I was just, I I, I was about to say, well, I understand, of course, that's, thank you so much for calling, that's really nice, you didn't have to call and tell me, I assumed that, because he continued, he'd like to write you a book instead, and I was just floored, I I was flabbergasted, I tried to keep my cool, I tried to pretend that this is a phone call I got every day of the week, and, he said, well, he's, he's, uh, he's got an idea for a book. It's called The Colorado Kid. He's not sure it's going to be suitable for you. Uh, and I said, oh, it'll be suitable for us. <laughs> it'll, it'll be suitable for us. I'm pretty sure it'll be suitable. Uh, and then sometime later, a few months later, I got the manuscript, and it was terrific. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a frustrating book for a lot of readers in one way, which is that he poses a, a mystery early in the book. There's a dead man on the beach, and uh, nobody knows how he got to be on that beach or why he's dead. And in the end, without spoiling anything, it's probably a more enjoyable book if you know this going in. Uh, the mystery doesn't get answered. It doesn't get solved. That is the cardinal sin in mystery novels. You can't, unless you're Stephen King, you cannot pose a mystery and then not solve it. And I knew going in there would be readers who would hate it. They would throw the book against the wall, and he knew that too. Uh, but I loved it. It was, it was beautifully written, as as all his books are. It was short in the exact way we like our books to be short. It um, didn't have much sex in it, which, you know, you can't have everything. But um, it had a crime, it had a mystery, and it was a pleasure to read. And I said, absolutely, we, we would love to publish it. In fact, let's go even further. Let's do what the old pulp, writers, pulp uh, publishers would do. And uh, since we knew this was going to piss people off, uh, let's put on the front cover the tagline, because all our books used to have these pulpy taglines. We've done a little less of that recently. Uh, there's a picture of a beautiful woman. And she's the journalist in the story who's researching this uh, dead man. And it said, "Would she learn the dead man's secret?" Question mark. And the answer is no; she wouldn't learn the dead man's secret. But but by putting that on the cover, you know, we bought ourselves a little inoculation. Well, we told you it was you know maybe yes, maybe no. If you thought it had to be yes, well, that's your own damn fault. I'm sorry. Uh, Anyway, we most people liked it. The reviews were were solidly enthusiastic, although a few uh, took. Steve to task for, for that choice he made. Sure. Uh, and we got one really angry letter from a lawyer saying, I want my you know, the time of mine you wasted having me read this book back and he sent the book back with it. Uh, i never I never sent him any money, of course <laughs> and uh but it was it was a fun book to publish and it it really put us on the map. We got a lot of media attention for it, of course, Steve was very generous to let us publish it at all. He could have published it with any publisher in the world. He had a relationship with his main publisher, Scribner, and they could have done it, right. uh, but he told them he wanted to do it with us. he wanted to help us and support us and and it did that book sold oh, i don 't know ten times more That's copies crazy. than anything else we 'd ever done, if not a hundred times That's fantastic. Uh, and uh, and then eight years later, he did it again. I got another call from his agent saying, hey, Steve just finished writing something he thought might fit in hard case crime. Would you like to take a look at it? Yes, I said, I would love to take a look at it. And that one was even better. That was Joyland, which is, by all accounts, one of his very best books. That got 100% positive reviews, literally. I don't think there was one negative review, and, and rightly so. It's It's a heartbreaking book. I was literally in tears on the last page. I think all readers pretty much are. Uh, and it's got a serial killer in it. It's it's a it's a crime story. It's a coming of age story. It's beautiful. And uh, and I was thrilled to publish that one. Needless to say, I was thrilled to publish that one too. I I will basically you know I'll do anything with the man. I also just like him personally. He's a very very nice, very generous, very kind man. And. Uh, it's not like we, you know, hang out barbecuing together. He he lives uh, all the way up in Maine, and I'm in Manhattan. But we've had a chance to see each other a few times, and he he's been very very kind. Uh, he he came to New York when I won the Ellery Queen Award. He surprised me by showing up in New York to present it to me, and uh, I you know that was that was above and beyond the call.
0: I admire his uh, his honesty. You know, he doesn't bullshit. Very
1: honest. Yeah. Yes.
0: Um. So how involved were you? Uh, with with Haven because there was a a, a, a TV show,
1: yes, adaptation Kid. Well, I was I was very involved, but I was one of the producers on the show, although uh, described as a consulting producer rather than whatever other types that you know, associate sure, producer, or executive, executive producer, whatever or kind. So, what what is a consulting producer? I read all the scripts, I consulted on them, I tried to improve them uh, when they needed it. You know, I mean, it, it, many of the scripts were just fine without my input, but I, I was able to improve them in some cases. I wrote a couple of scripts for the show myself. I came up with stories for episodes that I didn't write. Uh, and I went on set and, and worked with the actors and, and did all the things that, that a producer does. It was a tremendous experience for me. I really enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed going to LA, even though LA is not my favorite city. <laughs> but at the start of each season to kick off the writer's room and, and work with uh, with Sam and Jim, who were the writers that actually created the characters for the show, uh, and Matt McGuinness, who was the showrunner for the later seasons, who were all really a pleasure. And they gave me such an education in the film world that I didn't have. You know, I, I grew up in books, I grew up in magazines. I didn't know the first thing about film or television. And they taught me uh, everything I know, which is not the same as everything they know. They know far more than I ever will. Uh, but they let this. You know, I still think of myself as a kid it's funny I'm in my 40s now I'm almost 50 but I still think of myself as this kid from New York and I would hang around the set and I would hang around the, the writer's room and think of myself as this kid because my image of myself was formed when I was 13 years old and walking into magazine offices and trying not to get thrown out uh, this this image that you formed of yourself young, it's hard to dislodge. Um, but anyway, I, I I did do that work on on Haven, and the whole show came about in part because I, I met with a guy named Adam Frado, who now works as part of the New Zealand Empire of Weta and Peter Jackson That's and nice. some related people. But um, you know, we talked about the book before it was even published, and. Uh, and I described Colorado Kitchen, and I described this feature that it had – it was open-ended. The mystery wasn't solved. And around that time, there was a show called Lost on the air.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and everyone was watching Lost eagerly in part because every episode asked more questions and answered none. Right. I said, you know what, this is maybe uh, anathema for book publishing, anathema for a mystery novel, but it's exactly what you want in a TV show. You want mysteries that don't get solved so that you come back week after week hoping to find out more. And that's where Haven started uh, with that conversation. So I I love doing it. We did it for six years, and uh, I would gladly do it again, and hopefully at some point we'll get a chance to do that with a different show.
0: Did you like the process of taking something like a source material as a jumping-off point and exploding that out?
1: Yes and no. Uh, I did enjoy doing it with the nice guys, of course, but the explosion was a fairly contained explosion. Yeah. When you read the book, it is still very much the story of the movie with little bits of, uh, uh, of decoration added here and there for depth right. or or. or humor uh with haven uh, the difference between haven and the colorado kid were differences were very big uh there were all sorts of characters in the tv show that weren't on the in the book at all and there were a lot of changes uh that was fun on the other hand the process of making tv is far more collaborative than i personally like uh you get notes from the studio you get notes from the network the notes are sometimes from people who aren't nearly as steeped in the material as you are. And sometimes they're idiotic, and sometimes they're not idiotic, but there's still not something you want to do. I wrote a script about a 9-year-old uh, boy, and they said, could it be a 17-year-old girl? And I said, no, it's got to be a 9-year-old boy, and here's why. Mm-hmm. But look, there are practical reasons. If you have a 9-year-old boy, it's hard to shoot. You can only shoot so many hours a day under Canadian law, and a 17-year-old girl, you can shoot all day long. Uh, so it's not like they had bad reasons for asking these questions. Sometimes they did, but even good practical reasons. You know, I want a car crash. Well, we can't afford a car crash. What if you just show a car that is against a tree and you <laughs> hear the crash? You know, that, how about that? How does that sound? What well, sounds. Lousy, but you know, if that's all we can afford, that's what we'll do. It was a cheap show, you know, we did it as well as we could on a low budget, and I'm proud of how well it came out. It it came out well because of good scripts, not because we could afford fancy special effects. Um, But I missed it, I wished we could do fancy special effects once in a while. Uh, But you know, the collaboration was the biggest problem. I, I got used to not even having an editor you know my wife is a, a fantasy novelist and she has an editor and she loves collaborating and she loves rewriting what i love is no one bothering me i love sitting down and writing i start on page one i end on page whatever it is 250 and when i'm done i'm done i typeset the thing <laughs> myself no, nobody nobody sees it until it's in stores literally nobody sees it it's the and, attitude of
0: the hard-boiled writer
1: it is. It, it, but those guys, even even those guys had, had uh, editors, the editors just didn't do much. Although, yeah. I've talked to some of the old timers, like uh, Larry Block, who was around. He was a young guy in the pulp age, but he was around at the end of it. And he said you know, he would sell a book to a paperback house and they would have an editor whose entire job was to change your sentences. And they'd get fired if they didn't change enough of them. So they would take two sentences that were short, and they'd put them together and make one long one. Or they'd take one long one, and they'd cut it up and make two short ones for no reason other than because they didn't want to get fired. And so you would end up with this lousy, lousy editing. Uh, Now, I'm not saying I'm the best writer in the world. I'm far from it. But at least, for better or worse, if you read a book of mine, by God, it's my book. It's nobody else's. And on television, you know, I remember my first script for Haven, needed rewriting. Just like my first short story, Eleanor rewrote it, and the script needed it. So I'm grateful, phenomenally grateful that Jim and Sam rewrote it, and they did a beautiful job, far better than I could have done. When I got to the set, there was one line of dialogue that they had not rewritten. One. Wow. One. And I go on the set, and uh, one of the actors, uh, who I came to like quite a lot, and, and you know, he was a good guy, but one of the actors pulled me aside, and he said, you know, this line I think I've got a funnier one, <laughs> and it was the only line left from the entire script that was mine. I mean, the story was mine, the characters were mine, but that was the only line of dialogue. So I said very, very patiently, and hopefully without too much steel in my voice, you know what? Yes, your line is funny, and and so's mine. Why don't we shoot it both ways? By the way, that that's that's the classic trick. Oh yeah. Uh, when uh, when an actor says, "Hey, I've got an idea. Here's a better line." You shoot it both ways. Uh, <laughs> Because the actor doesn't control which take gets put in the in the final show, uh, and and we ended up using my version, but still, it's that's okay. That, that's okay. His version was good. It wasn't bad. He was actually really good at that. You know, he's not a writer, but a lot of actors have a sense of oh, yeah. what words should and shouldn't come out of their characters' mouths. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm grateful for that, uh, but. I like writing books. Absolutely. I really like writing
0: books. Absolutely. Well, Charles, we're getting uh, short on time, so I wanted to sure. ask you one more thing. So uh, okay. I think, I think, uh, it, like you said earlier, um, as far as hard case crime goes, th- there's definitely an opinion, and I share this opinion, that that your books are, are some of the tentpoles of the imprint. Um, but if you were to pick books, especially for people who uh, are not familiar with hard case crime, might be hard-boiled fans, but not as uh, into the imprint, are there books that uh, that you could uh, throw out? Authors that you could throw out? Where people should
1: start? Absolutely. Uh, let's give a few that are reprints and a few that are originals. Cool. Uh, on the reprint side, there's a book called A Touch of Death. A Touch of Death by Charles Williams, who is known for some books that became movies, books like Dead Calm, uh, and. I'm going to uh, blank on some of the others, but uh, he had a wonderful way with A Femme Fatale. And *The Femme Fatale in A Touch of Death is one of the meanest, most conniving, most cold-blooded and ruthless I've ever read. So A Touch of Death is perhaps the only book of ours other than Joyland that never got a single negative review. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. It was first published in the 50s. Uh, There's a book called Branded Woman by Wade Miller, uh, best known for writing the book that became Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles Mm -hmm. film noir. Mm -hmm. Uh, Branded Woman has gotten some bad reviews, but mostly positive, and I love it. And It's the story of a female jewel smuggler who is kidnapped by a rival, a male rival, who brands his initial in her forehead as a way of saying, stay out of my way. And when she recovers, she boards a plane with a gun in her purse, back when you could still do that. (laughs) And uh, she's hunting for the man. She's going to hunt him down and kill him. And it's wonderful. It's a great book. So those are two reprints that I recommend highly. Mm -hmm. On the original side, there's a wonderful first novel by a guy named Ariel S. Winter called The 20-Year Death. And that's an extraordinary book. It's three times the length of our usual books. And I almost rejected it out of hand when the agent sent it to me. I said, this is a 180,000-word book, and our books run 60,000 words. Why in the world should I even open this? And she said, just, just open it. And I opened it, and the first 60,000 words read like a paperback by George Simenon. Suspiciously, weirdly, as if it was a book by George Simenon. And I kept reading. And the second 60,000 words read suspiciously like a book by Raymond Chandler. <laughs> that Raymond Chandler never wrote. And the third 60,000 words read like a book by uh, by uh, Jim Thompson. And this kid, this young writer, nailed all three voices perfectly. And what he did was he wrote a book that w- took the form of three lost paperback novels, yeah. one by Simonon one by Chandler, one by Thompson. And all three books feature the same two characters as their lives degrade and degenerate and turn into worse and worse situations. And uh, it's told in in uh, decade. The increments. So the first book is set in the 30s, the second in the 40s, second in the third in the 50s. And uh, it's just a brilliant, brilliant tour de force. So that's one that, that I recommend. And then the book coming out this month, which, by the way, of the three uh, – of the four that I'm naming, uh, this is the easiest to find because in two weeks, you'll be able to find it in every Barnes & Noble at the front of the store. Soho Sins is written by – it's a first novel again by a guy named Richard Vine. Oh, And it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's a crime novel set in the art world around the turn of the century, meaning the turn of, the, the, of this last century. So Sinatra is dead, but the Twin Towers are still standing. That mm-hmm. places it somewhere around 1999. Sure. And uh, there's an art collector and his wife, and the wife is dead, uh, shot to death brutally, and the collector goes into a police station and says, I believe I just murdered my wife. But he was actually in California when she was shot. So what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those books where the mystery itself is satisfying, but the language – you talked about the, the prose, the, mm-hmm. the style is the way into hard-boiled writing. The language is so good that I would stop dead on page after page and just <laughs> reread the sentence I just read. Thinking, I just did, I didn't just read a sentence that good, did I? <laughs> you know, I had to reread it because it was it, the, the 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 funny lines were that funny and the heartbreaking lines that heartbreaking. It was beautiful. So th- this guy Richard Vine is the managing editor. He has been for twenty eight years the managing editor of a magazine called Art in America, which is a century old art publication in the fine arts world. So he really knows that world. He's you know a PhD. But he was also one of the kids at Kent State in nineteen seventy who were protesting when, when the Federal Guard uh or State Guard, whatever it was, opened mm-hmm. fire, killing uh students. He was there. He was a beach bum in Hawaii. He was uh he worked in a locked psychiatric ward, he worked in steel mills. He's like this guy out of a out of a Steinbeck novel mm-hmm, and right. it was wonderful to find him to discover him and discover this great voice so i would recommend anyone who who's in a bookstore later in july pick up soho sins because it's so 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 good
0: that's fantastic charles thank you so much for being generous with your time Uh, and you with yours i I, it's a thrill to do this i i i love i love hearing about it and you're very passionate about it too which is makes (laughs) it for, for a very easy interview uh people can find you on twitter
1: correct Yes, uh, they can find at Hard Case Crime, or for that matter, at Charles Ardai. I don't post that often. They can find our website at www.hardcasecrime.com. com. All of our books are listed there, old and new. The newest are always up there, and uh, you can see three or four books that haven't even been published yet. So you can enjoy all our cover art, see sample chapters at our website, and uh, pick up our books, give them a try. You know, they're they're the popcorn of literature uh but like popcorn i promise you will not <laughs> stop eating after one kernel
0: and you're not going to want to throw away these these uh books at all <laughs> thank you. they are not thank uh, you. not a read and dispense type thing thank you so much charles i appreciate it man
1: thank you have a good one bye
0: bye see you
2: keep concealing everything you're feeling say it to her what can you lose maybe it's yours she's had clues which she chose to ignore maybe though she knows and just wants to go on as before as a friend So she closes the door, well if she does, those are the do's. Once the words are spoken, something may be broken, still you love her, what can you do? She had to choose Leave it alone